Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for glorious worship this morning. Turn your Bible to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, holy is he. Alexander Pope said so long ago, Know then thyself, presume not God to scan. The proper study of mankind is man. The proper study of mankind is man. C.H. Spurgeon countered, however, the proper study of God's people is God. It's the highest science. It's the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, the greatest thing you can ever do with your mind, your heart, your energy, your time, your effort to know more about God, His nature, His person, His work, contemplating the divine one. And thinking about God, the subject is so vast that all of our thoughts are lost in the immensity, so deep that all of our pride is lost in its infinity. All other subjects with which we grapple, we might walk away saying, I get it now, I'm in the know, I've got this one mastered. But when it comes to studying and knowing God, there is no plumb line that can find its death. There is no eye of the eagle that can fly high and see its height. Yet despite all the complexities and the enormity God is the most important subject that you or I will ever dare contemplate. You want to walk around on earth simply plotting your path without ever asking the big questions. Why am I here? Who put me here? What is my purpose? What am I to be? Where am I to go? And who is my God? Thinking about God, the Father, there's a quieting for every grief. In studying Christ, there is a soothing for every soul. In pondering the presence of the Spirit, there's a comfort for every wound. C.H. Spurgeon posed the question, would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then plunge yourself into Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in the immensity of God. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as devout musing about the subject of God. Isaiah's call comes in Isaiah chapter 6. It began, he says, in verse 1, and the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah had ruled Judah forever, about four decades. Uzziah had been a good king. They had known no king since Solomon like Uzziah. He had been an efficient administrator, good at the military, a commander. And under his leadership, Judah had grown in every imaginable way. He had been a true king. It must have been so easy for Judah to focus her hope and her future on Uzziah, who seemed to always be on the throne. But now what? Uzziah is dead, 
and Assyria, the enemy, is pressing closer and closer. Maybe Isaiah is saying something like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I had a vision and I saw the true forever king on his throne. Uzziah had given the people a sense of strength. He'd modernized the army. He'd taught them about agriculture. And now that Uzziah was dead, they were like sheep with no shepherd. And take one look at his son, Jotham. He will never be able to fill his father's shoes. It was in that year that King Uzziah died that Isaiah was called to see another king seated upon the throne. And even while Judah's throne was empty, heaven's throne was occupied by this one who was high and lifted up, exalted. In fact, even Uzziah, who had been a good king, died an arrogant man of leprosy. With Uzziah gone and Isaiah's heart and head searched for another king, the true king, I saw the sovereign, one translation says. Of course, to the Hebrews, normally to actually see God meant that you would die because God was too holy and righteous to behold. But in this instance, on a rare occasion, Isaiah is allowed into the vision of the throne room and he sees a theophany, the vision of Almighty God. As we visualize this scene with Isaiah and he brings us this report, we find ourselves on the raw edge of where we should not go. Isaiah was there, and as we read the story this morning, Isaiah takes us with him to the throne room. The veil is gone. He's in the Holy of Holies. It's a great throne. God is high and lifted up. In Isaiah 40, he describes God this way. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has marked off the heavens by the span? Who has calculated the dust of the earth by measure? Who has weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who dare direct the spirit of the Lord? Or who is God's counselor? With whom did God consult and who gave him understanding? And who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket to God and are regarded as a, a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands as if they find us. All nations are nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Take a, a glare at our globe. Look at the size of the world, the variety, the complexity. Think of the billions who actually, billions who actually make up mankind today, the populace of this planet. Look at the vast sky above it. Puny figures, by comparison, we are to the whole planet on which we live. And yet in Isaiah 40, 22, he says that God sits on a vault high above the earth, and the people are like grasshoppers to God. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, and he makes the cosmos his tent in which he will dwell. The world is his footstool above which he sits secure. 
Lift your eyes, he says in Isaiah 40, on high and see who has created all of these stars. The one who leads the host of the heavens by number. He calls every star by a name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one star is missing. We gaze into the sky above as the comets as they soar. The stars, millions, billions in number, billions of light years a distance. Our minds reel at the imagination of the created world around us, and they are all nothing to God. I want you to notice three things this morning. First of all, Isaiah calls for us, behold your God. Number one, behold your God. Look at verse six, chapter 6, verse 1. Behold, the, the Lord is seated on the throne, lofty and exalted. In Exodus 24, when they're describing God, the elders of Israel simply describe the pavement, the blueness of the pavement beneath his feet. And now as Isaiah describes God, all he describes is no more than the hem of his robe. It is as if it is too powerful and too personal for the prophet to tell. Of course, it wasn't the robe with which the temple was filled. It was the presence of Yahweh himself. But there's a barrier there beyond which the curious dare not penetrate. It's too awesome. It's too powerful. And so Isaiah simply speaks of the enormity of his robe. First of all, behold your God. Secondly, behold the seraphim. Behold the seraphim. Notice what he says in verse 2. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Six-winged creatures, mentioned only here in the Old Testament. They cover their eyes that they too might not fully see the powerful glory of God. They cover their feet, oriental modesty to cover the body, and they have two to fly, saying they're ready to serve around the throne of God. And they give us that threefold repetition back and forth. We will be there one day. Holy, 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 holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Of all the things that God might be, he is first and foremost holy. Oh, he is sovereign, but they don't sing sovereign, sovereign, sovereign. And he is love, the, the embodiment, the spirit of love. But they don't sing love, love, love. The only superlative for God in all the Old Testament or New Testament is holy, holy, holy. He is pure. He is moral. He is righteous. Holy is he. Hosea 11.9 says, For I am God, not man, the Holy One among you. God is holy, and yet God dwells among us. Perhaps sometimes as moderns, we get too close to God in our mind. Sometimes we think of him as nothing more than a pal that we can kind of fold up and put in our back pocket and pull him out when we might need him. 
Not so, say the seraphim. The the word for seraphim comes from the, the root word fiery or burning or blazing or dazzling. Like the burning bush is the presence of God in Exodus 3. Take off your shoes, Moses, in the fire you are on holy ground. 26 times in Isaiah, God is described as the Holy One of Israel. They fly back and they sing back and forth antiphonally, holy, holy, holy. Here's a third thing. Behold your God, behold the seraphim, the divine creatures who worship, but behold yourself. You notice what happens in verse 5? Having seen God and having seen the divine creatures and hearing their heavenly voices, he says in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Oh, my. I'm a sinner. I'm unrighteous. I'm impure. I've seen that which is pure and holy, and now I'm in trouble. Woe is me, he says. He was guilty before a God who is righteous. Everyone who took high school literature remembers Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. As always, Poe is the villain in his stories. In this particular story, there's an old man who lives with Poe who has a vulture-like eye, an ugly eye that disturbs Poe, the main character. And to escape the eye, Poe finally decides decides he's going to have to murder the old man who lives with him. So in the dark of one night, he opens a man's bedroom door. He opens the light of his lantern, and just a beam of light shines. And of course, as only Poe could write it, it shines immediately on the old man's vulture-like eye. You can hear in the story the old man's heart beginning to beat as he senses someone else in the room. And Poe sort of toys with his victim, then takes a pillow and suffocates the old man to end the dreadful eye. To cover his crime, he pulls up the planks of the house and puts the old man's body in that eye underneath the planks, nails him back down, and immediately there's a knock at the door. It's the police. That someone's reported a scream. Is something wrong in the house? To assure them nothing is wrong with the old body underneath the planks, he invites the police in for a cup of tea. And as they sit and talk, they're satisfied. He says, I just had a nightmare, and I just let out a scream myself. And as he's telling them the nightmare, and they're sipping the tea, all of a sudden, do you hear that? It's that muffled heartbeat. And then it grows louder and louder and louder until the villain shouts out, I admit the deed. I did it. The telltale heart is beneath the planks. It was the presence of the police. The guilt was too much. He realized he was dreadful. God is Isaiah's telltale heart. Woe is me. I am undone. He says, Isaiah had never realized the depth of his depravity before. But now that he stood in the midst of God's awesome holiness. Let me retranslate that for you. 
I'm a foul-mouthed sinner. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a foul-mouthed sinner, and everybody around me is a foul-mouthed sinner. You know, congregation, we have become victims of the theological bluff, have we not? That contemporary ruse among us. The sin has somehow become a non-fatal sickness for which someone else is responsible for our actions. I saw a little sign the other day that said, the wages of sin are death. That's what the Bible says, that's right. The wages of sin are death. But the sign continued. By the time taxes are taken out, however, it's just sort of a tired feeling when you sin. That's the way we've treated our sin, isn't it? We look at our neighbor and we say in our own minds, I'm not as bad as he. I'm not as bad as she. But in the presence of a holy God, there is no place to hide for Isaiah then or for us in the future. And he realizes there is no cure for his sin within himself. I want you to hear me say this this morning. God does not reveal himself to us to destroy us. God reveals himself to us to redeem us. God does not reveal himself to us to destroy us. God reveals himself to us to redeem us. The seraph picks up a hot coal, a fiery ember, and brings it over and places it upon Isaiah's lip. The hot coal, there is no payment of sin without suffering and death. The hot coal upon his lips, the foul-mouthed sinner is now cleansed by something from the altar of God. And Then look at verse 7. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. And your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Isn't that what we all long to hear? Don't we all want to hear those words one day from the divine voice? I know about your sin, but because of the death of Jesus, because of the coal of the cross, your sins are forgiven. To hear a holy and righteous, divine, cosmos-creating God say to us, your sins are forgiven. How do you see yourself this morning? We look in the mirror and what do we see? Sometimes it's hard to look ourselves in the eye in the mirror. Is it not? We find ourselves this morning confronted with the holiness of God's word and the holiness of the one who wrote it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He loves us so much. His unprofaned righteousness to come 
as the only perfect human being ever to live in the person of Jesus Christ, and he dies on the cross, and that cross becomes our coal, and then God can say the words that I long to hear and you long to hear. Your sins are forgiven. Isn't that what the Bible says? I will remember your sins no more. The author of Hebrews writes that, speaking for God. The Old Testament writes that, speaking for God. I will remember your sins no more. Can you imagine being a parent, having a child, little girl, and say, now this is my daughter, Megan. Now, Megan's the one who, who ruined the oriental rug with grape juice when she was two years old. This is Megan. Would you in introduce your children that way? Or this is our son, Miles. Miles is the one who broke Granny's vase last week, and it was, it was priceless. It was a family heirloom, heirloom, but Miles is the one. No, you don't remember your children that way. And God does not remember you that way. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Maybe you're here today and you would say, in the presence of this sacred space, in the presence of a holy God, I, I join Isaiah and I say, I am a foul-mouthed sinner. And I dwell in this room amongst foul-mouthed sinners. Would you come today to the coal from the throne of God? Would you come to a crucified Christ who pays for your sins? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And then, notice how it ends. Verse 8, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, Lord, send me. And he said, go and tell this people Isaiah walked in the room, a, a foul-mouthed sinner, in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. And once he's forgiven of his sins, and God says, I don't remember your sins anymore. And God says, I need somebody to go. I need somebody to tell about the goodness of God and God's love and holiness. And Isaiah raises his hand. He doesn't even know where he's going. But he knows that God's sending. Doesn't matter. Here am I, Lord. Would you send me? Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. Let us pray. Oh, God, today we see you big without limitations, high and lifted up the whole planet as your footstool, the canopies of the heavens, your tent in which you dwell, the stars held in your hand, the oceans told to stop right here by your command. We realize as much as you are holy, we are wretched we thank you for the coal of the cross that allows us to join the seraphim 
And that eternal chorus we'll all sing one day. Holy, holy, holy. Amen. hymn this morning is 662. Maybe you'd be in this room and you would come and say, I'm a sinner among sinners and I need a Savior, and that would make you like everybody else in this room. Maybe you'd come today and say, I want to be a part of a church family that preaches the gospel. I want to worship here and serve here. We'll meet you here at the front, 662.